This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Of course, today's big topic is impeachment. Later in the show, we'll speak with Eric Foner for some historical perspective on the attack last week on the Capitol. Also later in the show, Ella Taylor will talk about the new documentary, MLK FBI about J. Edgar Hoover's attempt to destroy Martin Luther King. Destroy is the FBI's own term. And finally, the PGA is canceling their long-standing plans to hold the U.S. Open at Trump's Bedminster Golf Course in New Jersey. The New York Times reports Trump is more devastated by this than by impeachment. The legendary sports writer Robert Lipsight will comment on Trump and golf. And we have some big news. We're changing the name of our show, Trump Watch. The change will take place as soon as Joe Biden is inaugurated. At 9 a.m. our time here in L.A., next Wednesday, January 20th, Trump Watch will become Living in the USA. That's the new name for our show, chosen with the help of dozens of listeners. Of course, we'll still keep an eye on Trump and his people, but there will be plenty of other news once he's out of office about living in the USA. That's why Trump Watch will become living in the USA the hour that Joe Biden becomes president. So today is the final installment of Trump Watch. Next week, we'll be back, same time, same host, same regular guests, with living in the USA. Now to today's show, starting with impeachment. As we record this podcast, the House of Representatives is debating the impeachment of Donald Trump for a second time. This time, the crime is incitement of insurrection at the Capitol last Wednesday. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him at home today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So as we speak, the House debate is going on. The uh, basis for impeaching Trump, according to the House resolution, is incitement of insurrection. Most of the Republicans are complaining that the House is holding no hearings, presenting no witnesses. They say this is an unprecedented situation. They're calling it a snap impeachment. What is the evidence that Trump engaged in incitement of insurrection? I would say months of rhetoric that the election was being stolen, which would, uh, you know, in including uh, an hour or two before the Capitol was stormed. Uh, and the reason the Capitol was stormed was because Trump said the election was being stolen. We, you should come to D.C. It will be wild, as he said in a tweet. Uh, and, uh, you know, you should stop that. But, you know, an interesting point in what one of the handful of Republicans who spoke today in favor of voting for impeachment uh, alluded to the fact that uh, we, we've received, you know, that, that there's ample evidence that Trump was watching the uh, uh, breaking into the Capitol and the uh, vandalism and violence uh, that, uh, that his supporters uh, inflicted uh, and did nothing. Um, so beyond inciting this Republican was uh, re referring to the, the president's clear shirking his duty uh, to defend the United States government, you know, in real time, not, not simply inciting, but uh, permitting 
abetting. I think the evidence is, uh, is, is, is pretty clear, as acknowledged even by uh, the, the relative handful of Republicans who are voting for the measure. Uh, meanwhile, most of the Republicans have been decrying uh, the impeachment for two interesting reasons. One, um, that they'd already impeached him once, and here they are back a second time, uh, as though uh, a repeat criminal should only be tried the first time and not the second. An interesting, you know, uh, an, an, an interesting uh, proposition from the Law and Order Party. Second, uh, that this was dividing the nation. Uh, this from a Republican House delegation, two thirds of whose members were supporting utterly fictitious, bogus challenges to Joe Biden's election one week ago today. Um, you know, I mean, we, we think of the break-in as like the outrage of last Wednesday, but there were multiple outrages uh, last week and uh, overturning the result of the election, which clearly uh, had elected Joe Biden, is I think perhaps the greater. Um, and the same Republicans who were uh, today, arguing on behalf of unity, so we can't do uh, an impeachment, um, were being more, uh, as or more divisive than the people who broke into the Capitol last week. Well, let's talk about some of the, I have to say, remarkable developments in Republican opposition to Trump that has emerged just in the last couple of days. Kevin McCarthy, who Trump has called my Kevin, it's somebody we find reprehensible and also a little stupid. Um, he, he's, am, am I exaggerating here? No, you're not. You're not. If anything, you're being euphemistic. Okay. Well, he's the minority leader of the House. He's the highest ranking He's the leader of the Republicans of the House, and and uh, he has he has changed course dramatically, although not completely. I mean, he said in his speech today, "quote The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding." Close quote. He's saying the same thing that you're saying. He, he is, but then he's going on to say that this is a divisive process today, and if only we voted for censure and not impeachment, uh, we, could all, uh, we could all agree, which I think is a highly untested thesis. But, uh, uh, you know, I mean, this is also the guy who uh, led Republicans in uh, opposing uh, the electoral vote from Pennsylvania last week, uh, even after uh, the violence. So, you know, I mean, the, 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 this is at most a halfway measure from, uh, as you noted, a guy who goes by Mike Evan. Uh, it's it's uh, acknowledging the president did wrong, but saying, uh, well, we don't want to actually impeach. Of course, one of the differences between impeachment and censure is uh, impeachment carries with it uh, a ban on seeking further office, as censure does not. The Republican who disagrees most strongly uh, with Kevin McCarthy's refusal to support impeachment in the House is the remarkable Liz Cheney of Wyoming, the number three Republican in the House. She has been extremely clear and made powerful arguments about why what the Republicans were trying to do in overturning the Electoral College vote was wrong. 
and in declaring that what Trump has done is an impeachable offense. Let's talk about the greatness of Liz Cheney. Yes, well, it is a selective greatness, but in this sphere, it is greatness. And, you know, let's let's expand this a little. Um, there were 10 former secretaries of defense who on the eve of the congressional, con you know, counting of the electoral vote last week, <clears throat> all signed uh, an, an open letter, every living former secretary of defense uh, saying that the election results were legitimate, the armed services should do nothing to uh, sustain an effort to overturn them. That was actually uh, uh, initiated by Liz Cheney's father, um, former Vice President Dick Cheney, who is a uh, generally, uh, you know, uh, revile, justly reviled figure um, for his uh, promotion of the uh, Iraqi war and try to get rid of dissent against the Iraqi war. So we, we kind of have this special niche now for the Cheney family in which they are exhibit, on the one hand, all the worst qualities of what was called neoconservatism, but on the other hand, have a basic understanding, at least in this instance, of the Constitution and how to uphold it. Um, so life is complicated, go figure. Let's also try to figure out Mitch McConnell, who in the last two days has made it clear that he is in favor of the House impeaching Donald Trump for incitement of insurrections, but he doesn't seem to be in favor of a trial in a prompt trial in the Senate on these charges. Still, it's a remarkable development um, given the last four years. Well, I think Mitch McConnell would actually like to impeach and convict uh, Donald Trump mainly for losing Georgia and costing him, Mitch McConnell, the <laughs> leadership of the United States Senate. Uh, that, I think, is probably an unforgivable sin uh, in Mitch McConnell's eyes. But even, you know, I mean, even pragmatically, I, I think he might welcome a conviction of Donald Trump after a Senate trial. In other words, getting 17 votes from Republicans to convict because that would prohibit Donald Trump from appearing on the ballot in 2024 as a presidential candidate, which I think McConnell is probably convinced would drag down the whole Republican Party, himself included. So uh, that's my, uh, you know, quick uh, analysis of whence Mitch McConnell comes. Do we agree with Mitch McConnell that Donald, if Donald Trump appears on the ballot or indeed participates in the Republican primaries, that he will drag down the Republican Party and the forces of light and goodness will benefit from Trump's remaining uh, active candidate in, for the next four years? I think we do. We, we, we're really seeing something we haven't seen uh, in years, uh, which is a, a real uh, wedge uh, a real split in, in the Republican coalition, uh, as, as evidenced by the relatively few House members who are uh, voting today for impeachment, but also by the fact that only a very small fraction of Republican senators last week voted to sustain the electoral objections. Uh, I think it was eight 
of the, uh, at that point, it was uh, 51 Republican senators last week uh, voted. This is objecting, objecting yeah. to the certification of Joe Biden as the winner of the Electoral College. Yes, most, you know, and, and it is clear that McConnell and a number of the Republican senators who already didn't like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz hate them more for creating essentially this division uh, for uh, bring, you know, for sustain, uh, letting, letting these objections go forward. It required one senator to, you know, go along with the House, Republicans in the House, uh, to challenge uh, the election results. And uh, Hawley and uh, Hawley and Cruz did just that. So um, I, I think we're seeing, you know, evidence of, of a split of, of fissures. And remember, well, you know, McConnell denounced this effort just at the beginning of the debate before the Capitol was attacked last week. But he was, you know, just coming off the news that uh, both of his candidates in Georgia, both the Republicans had lost. That was only clear maybe an hour or so before that debate began. And I have no doubt that that uh, just uh, fired McConnell up more than anything else in his rage against Trump, Hawley, and Cruz. But I have to say, Mitch McConnell is my hero today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is a very circuitous route to reaching that, uh, reaching that conclusion, but we're in no position to uh, dismiss circuitous routes. I, I want to um, change the subject to Wednesday, January 20th at noon, when Joe Biden will take the oath of office administered by Chief Justice John Roberts. The forces that Trump mobilized last Wednesday are promising to return and to redouble their efforts to disrupt the proceedings. These are people who are heavily armed. They are, we have shown, they have, they're capable of killing the cops. Um, some of our friends are saying, despite the uh, deployment of 20,000 National Guardsmen and every known law enforcement agency on the East Coast, this is too risky to conduct the normal, traditional inauguration uh, outdoors on the steps of the Capitol. And it would, we need Joe Biden to go indoors to a safer place uh, to take this, uh, to engage in this ceremonial uh, occasion. What's your opinion? Well, I don't think that uh, anyone will be permitted within three miles of the Capitol uh, next Wednesday uh, un unless they have a, 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 an individual clearance. Uh, 20,000 armed National Guardsmen can essentially cordon off uh, very many blocks uh, city blocks in Washington, D.C. I'm probably about, I don't know where I live, is probably about three miles from the Capitol. I don't think anyone will be able to get any closer to the Capitol pretty much than I am right now uh, unless they have an individual clearance. I want to point up one historic precedent, though. Lincoln's second inaugural, in which he gave perhaps the greatest speech uh, any, any, as I say, any president, but any American may ever have given. 
in that crowd was John Wilkes Booth with a gun. Uh, and uh, when Lincoln was finished speaking, uh, Booth said to uh, his friend who was with him, this means, he said the N-word, uh, Negro, we'll clean it up, Negro voting. And he pulled out his gun, but it, it, it misfired or something like that. So we do have a kind of grim precedent, but I don't think the crowd was really screened in the way that 20,000 National Guardsmen plus the FBI, plus the DC police, plus the Maryland police and state troopers and the Virginia police and state troopers will do. Um, but look, uh, you know, Biden, the people around Biden have been nothing uh, other than cautious about exposing him to the COVID-19. Uh, I don't think they'll go ahead with this unless they're convinced it's safe. So we shall see. I'm sure Biden wanting to restore normality wants to do this outside. And the FBI has said that these same armed white nationalist neo-Nazi forces are threat will threaten all 50 state capitals starting on Saturday. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Well, that I think actually probably poses a greater danger than the Biden inaugural ceremony itself. Uh, because, uh, you know, there are plenty of these folks spread across all 50 states and uh, the capacity of the states to uh, keep them at bay. Uh, I have more question about than I do the uh, uh, capacity of the feds in, uh, in D.C. On the other hand, keep in mind that Saturday and Sunday, at least, legislatures will not be meeting in the 50 states. I think at this juncture, I'm more concerned about violence in the 50 state capitals uh, than I am anywhere near uh, the United States Capitol building. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. For some historical perspective on the Trump mob attacking the Capitol on Wednesday, we turn to Eric Foner. He taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Uh, thank you for having me, John. The situation yesterday was outrageous and horrible, obviously, but much of the commentary, which I don't blame TV pundits, you know, seemed to be resting on the assumption that until yesterday, we had a, you know, beautifully functioning political democracy in this country, and that that's our history. This is not us, we kept hearing over and over again. I'm sorry to say it is us, or at least part of us. Part of American history is represented by Abrams and those people who wanted to expand democracy and make it a more progressive force. Part of us are those who try to limit 
the right to vote. And of course, throughout our history, African-Americans couldn't vote for most of our history. It's not until the civil rights era that they could vote in the South, with the exception of Reconstruction, of course, for a few years in the 19th century. Uh, women couldn't vote until the 20th century. Um, in other words, the suppression of votes is not something that was invents, invented yesterday. We, we're a democracy, but there seem to always be people who think that too many people are trying to vote and they ought to be limited. Too many of the wrong kind of people. The wrong kind of people, poor, non-white, propertyless, et cetera, et cetera. I have a specific question about the elections in Georgia. This was a runoff yesterday because none of the candidates got 50%. They didn't get 50% because the Republicans were divided in the first round of elections. But why doesn't the candidate with the most votes win in Georgia? Why this 50% requirement? Yeah, well, that was put in in 1963 during the height of the civil rights movement. And the people who put it in were pretty explicit that it was meant to limit the power of black voting. In other words, the assumption was blacks would vote as a group. They would vote for maybe a black candidate or a white candidate, didn't matter. If there were a number of white other candidates backed by white people, the candidate backed by blacks might slip in if you only need a plurality to vote. For example, in the first electoral, in the first Senate vote, Warnock got about 35% of the vote or something like that. Therefore, there's a runoff. In most states, if Warnock would have been elected, the person who got the most votes, even though it wasn't a majority, I think there's only one other state, one of the Dakotas that actually has this runoff system. So it's, it was meant to limit the power of black voting. Uh, and um, it worked the first time around uh, now, but in the, in the runoff, obviously, uh, Warnock, Warnock got enough votes to, uh, to win. Um, it's another example of how voting has been manipulated many times in our history through gerrymandering, through vo- various forms of voter suppression uh, to try to uh, limit uh, black political power. I've been saying that Wednesday's attack aimed at stopping the counting of electoral votes was unprecedented in American history. But I'm having some second thoughts. Was I right about that or or did I miss other efforts to overturn the results of a of a Democratic election? Uh, Well, you're right that this hadn't taken place in the Capitol building up to this point. I, I don't believe any outside force invaded the capital since 1814 when the British burned the place, but in the War of 1812. But um, the, the, the overthrow by violence of democratically elected governments is not widely known by white people, but is certainly part of the historical memory of black people. During Reconstruction, you had events like the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana, where an armed mob of white people stormed the courthouse in Grant Parish, Louisiana, and massacred a whole bunch of black people in order to take over the county government. Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, this is a little later, 1898, where again, an armed mob uh, forced the legally elected biracial government of Wilmington to resign, and it was like a coup d'etat, they took over. So in other words, that sort of thing has happened in our history. Uh, and uh, we should not forget it uh, in, in saying, well, this is not us, this has never happened before. The fact is that 
democratic government hasn't existed for most of our history. For most of our history, black people couldn't vote. Uh, and it's, it's since the, you know, really since the Voting Rights Act in the South that you had functioning democracy. And even there, as you know, a few years ago, the Supreme Court overturned parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, making it much easier for states to disenfranchise large numbers of people, which some of them are trying to do. In a tweet I called uh, Wednesday's attack on, on Congress one of the worst days in American history, and one person replied to me, every day of slavery was worse than Wednesday. <laughs> well, uh, true enough, if you were a slave, that is uh, certainly true. Um, I understand what you were saying. I think this day will go down, uh, you know, as a day of infamy, as President Roosevelt referred to December 7th, Pearl Harbor, or... Uh, 9-11, which we all remember, or maybe the assassination of Kennedy in 1963. You and I are old enough to remember where we were at when we heard the news of that. Um, but yes, the person who made the point about slavery is um, making a good point. That, yeah, that's what I know, thought. Good point. I said, so I replied, good point. So yeah. then I changed, I changed this in another tweet, and I said, perhaps Wednesday was the worst day for American democracy. And somebody else replied just with a list. Wilmington, 1898, Chicago, 1919, Tulsa, 1921, Detroit, 1943. Maybe you should explain this list. Well, I think his list is going a little off the point. Tulsa, if you're talking about democracy, voting, government, Tulsa didn't have to do with that. Tulsa was a horrible thing. It was a massacre in which an entire black neighborhood was burned to the ground. But it, it was just garden variety racism that they were enacting, <laughs> okay. not an attack on democracy. Maybe that's a pointless uh, distinction for the people who suffered. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Detroit, which was a horrible uh, you know, example of um, violence against blacks. Um, Chicago race riot. Sure, th this person has a good list of all the horrible racial altercations that have taken place or massacres in American history, but those that are specifically geared to the working of political democracy uh, are, are fewer, although certainly in Reconstruction, there were many, many examples of black people being assaulted, murdered, intimidated in order to stop them from voting, voting, you know, Republican Party rallies being broken up by white mobs, white rifle clubs, as they called themselves in Mississippi. Uh, uh, you know, determining the outcome of an election. Um, Reconstruction taken as a whole and the overthrow of Reconstruction certainly shows that overturning democratic government is something that has happened many a time in uh, American history. Well, in your new piece for the nation, you conclude with a pretty, pretty interesting point. The United States, you wrote, spends far more on its military than any other nation, which isn't the way most people approach this question. But where, tell us where you go with that. Well, the military, which has a gigantic bloated budget, as we know, is supposed to defend us from enemies, particularly enemies abroad. We have a giant military establishment. Nobody can invade the United States. 9-11 slipped through, so to speak. But um, since the Civil War, there has not been military. Well, let's take that back. There was military conflict against Native Americans in the West. Let's say in the 20th century, there has not been military action on the Ameri you know, in, within the United States. But the fact is that 
this assault on democracy came from Americans. The military, you know, the military is looking out for Iranians or Chinese or Russians who are after us. But what about the danger within the the uh, erosion of democratic values as promoted avidly by the president? So I end by quoting the famous words of Lincoln from his Lyceum speech in 1838 that if destruction be our lot, we ourselves will be the authors. Clever guy, Lincoln, you know, <laughs> he said, let's not worry so much about some army invading us and let's worry about our commitment to democracy here at home. And indeed, right now, as in Lincoln's time, the danger to American democracy lies within. Eric Foner, you can read his new piece at The Nation. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Nice to talk to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk again about TV in the age of the virus. This is News You Can Use, a regular feature of our program. We can't go to the movie theaters, but we can keep watching stuff at home. And so for some advice, we turn once again to Ella Taylor, of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, the Atlantic, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Well, this week we want to talk about the documentary, which is uh, opening everywhere online Friday, MLKFBI. It's about how J. Edgar Hoover used the full force of the federal government to try to destroy Martin Luther King. And destroy is their word. Yes, um, you know, and of course, some of this material is known because we have known for some time that the FBI uh, under J. Edgar Hoover conducted all this surveillance of Martin Luther King much of it was personal life. This is a very deep dive by the director, the African-American uh, director, Sam Pollard, into the material. Um, he made uh, Mr. Soul and also a documentary about uh, Sammy Davis Jr., I Gotta Be Me. Um, so he's pretty distinguished coming in. And the film is based on a book by the equally distinguished but white historian, uh, David Garrow. And uh, the film places these events in historical context, the period uh, 1963, when there was the famous civil rights march on Washington and Kennedy, the Kennedy murder, and 1968, when Martin Luther King himself was murdered. Last week, we looked at The Dissident, which was a documentary about the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, which was really about espionage that can be done today just by taking over the victim's phone. Um, this is also about espionage conducted by uh, the FBI. Here we, we're dealing with, by today's standards, much more primitive 
technology, but uh, equally damaging. We're talking about wiretapping um, the phones at uh, his office, at MLK's office, and uh, bugging his home phone uh, as well. And so they were able to spy on Martin Luther King's private life um, in order to besmirch the re his reputation right around the time that A, he won a Nobel Peace Prize and B, the Civil Rights Act was passed into law by LBJ. And uh, it's done through archival footage. The movie begins in black and white and then segues into color later on, which is very effective in terms of the context of history. Uh, and it's, it's dotted with archival footage and photos and also clips from the many movies that have been made, um, not only about MLK, but of, uh, about Hoover himself, in which it emerges that he had a secret life of his own, as perhaps we all do. So it's particularly poignant and, and uh, ironic that he chose to focus on Martin Luther King extramarital uh, sexual experiences, which we know he now know that he had. There are also two uh, prominent women historians uh, who provide testimony. One is Beverly Gage, who is white, and the other is Donna Murch, who is African-American. One of the questions that it raises now that the audio tapes of uh, MLK's sexual activities um, have been declassified, but will not be available to the public until 2027. So one of the questions is, should they be made public at all? Now, I agree that uh, with the director and some of the commentators that probably they should not be made available to the public simply because it's none of our business. <laughs> Um, I disagree with some of the commentary, uh, of course, made mostly by men, about how this reflects on MLK's character. The new information is that he had sex with uh, many, many women, and according to the FBI, more tendentiously, because these were audio tapes, they claim that he looked on, um, that he put a, participated in a sex orgy and that he watched as a young woman was raped. Now, remember, these are audio tapes, so they really couldn't tell whether that was happening. But one of, the, one of his friends argues that uh, there was nothing wrong with any of this because it was part of MLK's radical sexuality. Now, this for me is a stretch <laughs> of extraordinary proportions. He had a lot of sex with a lot of women, which is not radical and not new. Um, the part of it that says we should, that it reflects in no way on his moral character, I think is not correct. Not so much because he was having uh, extramarital relationships. Who knows? Maybe they, have, they had an agreement. But because um, he was willing and able to subject his wife, Coretta Scott King, to the public humiliation that she received as a result of the opening up of this information. Bill Clinton did it, Gary Hart did it, somehow or other, all these guys, you know, they get into power and they think they can do anything. And the part of me that 
that feels free, that felt for Hillary Clinton and Gary Hart's wife feels the same way for Coretta Scott King, even though she was extraordinarily loyal to him. And uh, when asked if um, if all this was true, one of the two historians, and I can't remember which, the women historians said, probably, we can't tell, but probably not all of it is true and not all of it is false. As a historian of this period who has studied all this for a long time, I have to say there's nothing terribly new here uh, in the information in this documentary. There's no huge revelations or bombshells. Most of the details and the stories of King's infidelity uh, have been known for decades. Still, there are shocking parts of this story. To me, the two most shocking are that King's photographer, Ernest Withers, who was with him more than almost anyone, taking pictures of everything he did in his public life, was an FBI informant and fed all this material to the FBI. It's an incredible betrayal of somebody incredibly close to King. And second, more politically significant, is the source of this line about destroying him. This was after Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington, August 28, 1963. Two days later, there's a memo from the number two person in the FBI, William Sullivan, who's the head of FBI domestic intelligence. He writes to Hoover, King is now the most dangerous Negro in the future of this nation, and adds, quote, we must use every resource at our disposal to destroy him, close quote. This is top official of the FBI, when they get the tapes of his extramarital affairs, they try to destroy him by mailing these to him and threatening to make them public on the eve of his Nobel Prize speech with a cover note, anonymous, of course, that says, King, you have only one way out now, suggesting that he should commit suicide. Of course, he didn't commit suicide. They did release the tapes at that point. They sent them to, I I think, five prominent journalists. Some didn't listen to the tape. Some did and said, we don't know exactly what this is. We don't think this is appropriate. And so Hoover's attempt to, quote, destroy King failed at that point, but it wasn't for lack of trying. As I say, we know this story, almost all of it, extremely well, but it's still shocking. And I think it's, it's, it's to the credit of Pollard here that he he reminds us of how terrible this was. Well, let's talk about something a little more lighthearted. It's been a heavy week in America. This documentary is uh, reminds us of some of our darkest acts of our government. Uh, can you suggest something to to uh, something that is purely enjoyable and fun to watch? Yes, this is a, um, a Netflix limited series that has already is already on Netflix um, called Pretend It's a City, which is a quote from the humorist and, and public commentator Fran Lebowitz, who apparently when when people uh, refused to move on a on the city streets, she would shout to them, move, pretend it's a city. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's directed by Martin Scorsese, who is a close friend of Fran Lebowitz. She knows everybody uh, there is to know in New York. Uh, the two of them are close friends and 
on the face of it, that's rather astonishing um, because both of them talk like express trains and you'd think that, you know, and both of them have very strong opinions on a, a wide variety of topics. And yet they know how to listen to each other. And this in this series, purportedly, Fran Lebowitz is talking about uh, the stages in the evolution of the city, and she's wonderful on that. Um, but actually, she's walking around a, a scale model of New York City, which is uh, sits in the Queen's Museum. And she talks about everything, which is really what you want her to do, because she's A, so hilariously funny, and B, very interesting and very original on almost every subject. As she says, she's plot free. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she talks a blue streak, and Martin Scorsese either sits and listens or guffaws loudly, which is also very charming. (laughs) Um, Both of their creative imaginations were almost completely fueled by the city, so they are the right people for this. Both of them come from working-class immigrant families. And, you know, for both of them, as I say, New York is the the source of their creative imagination. (laughs) Apparently, uh, this is not in the movie, but she remarked when people were leaving, were escaping New York when the pandemic started, she shouted, don't come back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, just on that subject, when I first saw that the title was Pretend It's a City, I thought this was going to be a a lament, a sad story about after the pandemic where the streets are empty, nobody can go out. Now we have to pretend it's a city. But as you've suggested, that really has nothing to do with it. This is all shot well before the pandemic and New York is bustling and there's people bumping into her on the street and she's mad at them. Yes. And the truth is that there's very little that Fran Leibowitz laments um, other than the period, of course, that we're going through now, that which everybody who matters, laments, um, because she finds people so ridiculous and hilarious and uh, interesting. And she's also, she's actually, she may be plot free, but she's also in a way ideology free. And that's what makes her so original. She will say what she thinks about everything. So, for example, um, well, she talks a lot about being a cab driver when she was a young woman. Um, but she also talks about her first assignments for interview, Andy Warhol's Interview magazine, where she promptly got writer's block, which uh, we're all very grateful for because that turned her into just such a wonderful humorist and public speaker and in a way, she does stand up, except she doesn't make jokes. She comments on life, and that's what makes her so funny. But um, her insights into Andy Warhol are both original and commonsensical, and that's what I mean by ideology-free, because we're very accustomed to him being mostly praised for the interesting people he had around him. What she noticed was that almost all of them died. In other words, that he had a tendency to attract to himself very troubled people who were right on the edge of either madness or suicide or, or whatever. She didn't like him for that, and apparently he didn't much like her as well. It's not that they didn't get on, but she didn't. She she just didn't like him for that, and that's something that you would think that somebody would have pointed out by by now. But it takes a Fran Leibowitz who doesn't care what anybody thinks of her. 
There's some marvelous stuff about her upbringing. Her parents were, as she puts it, extremely conventional people. It's really hard to imagine, given who she is. Uh, and that she was brought up to prepare to be a wife, which she said didn't work out well for her parents, but works out very well for her. She lives alone with the thousands of books, and she's a noticer of the banality and the bromides that people talk about womanhood in particular, but also everything else. And she's so quick uh, and so funny that it's just a pleasure to listen to her. And that's mostly what, what Scorsese does. Occasionally he'll ask her a question, but we also see her together with Spike Lee, another very in opinionated person, and they go at each other um, in, uh, in, in no uncertain terms. And yet when he talks... She listens. She actually is a listener, even though she has this rapid, rapid fire delivery and opinions about absolutely everything. For example, when she's talking about art forms, she's really marvelous. She talks about musician and cooks being the great artists of the world because they make people happier, <laughs> which most art doesn't. Um, she is really negative about the the visual arts world, which she calls correctly. Um, a racket and says and says that today when there's an auction that people applaud the price but not the Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> if they if these two people were in high school now, she and Scorsese, they would probably be medicated. I say that as a parent who's seen the over medication of of kids in school, and I think we have to be very very happy that they grew up in an era when kids were not medicated for that because it's obvious that this was the source um, of all their their creative impulses they're very strange people in some ways uh, but in the in the in in the most delightful way as mary poppins would say um, so i highly recommend this she talks a lot about money and how um, she makes likes to make money but she also spends it she's apparently very spendthrift I don't know why because all she's got in her apartment are books she's horrified by the idea of um, living with anybody else and uh, she's just the most unique uh, funny and and uh, likable individual I loved her response to the question does complaining change anything and she says not so far but I'm still a young woman <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> She's almost 70. <laughs> Ella Taylor, our Virus Time TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. My, my cats are giving me what I would like to think are love bites, but in fact, I think they want to be fed. So I'm going to rush <laughs> off and feed them. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. The PGA, the Professional Golf Association, announced over the weekend they were canceling their longstanding plans to hold the U.S. Open at Trump's golf course in Florida. 
Maggie Haberman of the New York Times reported that, quote, he's angry about impeachment, people who have spoken to him say, but his reaction to the PGA decision was a different order of magnitude. He was, quote, gutted by the move, a person close to the White House says. We talked about Trump and golf back in 2017 with Robert Lipsight. He's a legendary sports writer and columnist at the New York Times and the award-winning author of more than a dozen books on sports, fiction and nonfiction, many for young adults. He's also the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch, where he wrote about Trump and golf. And he's also a contributor to The Nation. At that point in 2017, when we spoke, upper-class golfers were key supporters of Trump. I asked him about Trump and golf. I despise the game almost as much as I despise Trump. But the, the heart of it is the idea that golf, of course, operates on the honor system, even though most of the presidents who played have cheated. But <laughs> golf does operate on, on, on the honor system. And the idea is that, you know, if, if you hit a bad shot, you don't ignore it and do it over again. You take the penalty. I, I think that this is part of that kind of character that, that golf is supposed to be a crucible of. Yes. But I, I, I think that when you have somebody like Trump who cheats, uh, who takes shots over again all the time, and then in, in probably the most grievous sin is he drove his golf cart onto the green, that, that kind of little patch of very meticulously cosseted grass with the hole in the middle. <laughs> and the whole idea of keeping the green pristine is because the good golfer, and I must say, uh, from all I've seen, uh, Trump is a good golfer. The good golfer is able to look at the green. It's called reading the green to kind of understand, you know, the curves and angles on the grass so that you can make your final putts. To drive his cart onto that is, is really, I guess, like pissing on the Vatican wall. That really is an ultimate affront, a, a kind of violation of what is considered sacred in the sport. You've described the, the golf culture that Trump is part of as consisting of successful greedheads and wannabes. But, but what about the zen of golf? You know, a man alone with all his weaknesses facing the ball that lies still. Isn't that a profound test of character and self-knowledge? I think there are a lot of profound ways to test yourself and to learn about yourself. And I think thrashing a little white ball that can't hit you back <laughs> may not be quite at the top of the list, John. Okay. I, I think that I, I find something bizarre in this idea of, of golf as the hero's journey. I mean, come on. What it's basically there for, and, and by the way, on, on what hero's journey can you also eat smoke and, and make hedge fund deals. <laughs> okay. um, I, I think that business and the applications of business are really one of the main functions of golf. For women uh, who have been unable to, to crack a lot of the C-suites is that they, uh, you know, they don't belong to clubs. Uh, they don't, in a sense, participate in, in what I call urinal society. 
I mean, I think that so much of the real business of business gets done. Two guys, you know, peeing together in a clubhouse, and one turns to the other and says, so, well, what are you going to do about that new trucking deal? And I think that's how a lot of business is taken care of, whether it's in the clubhouse, on the greens, in the bathrooms. And I, I think that it's that kind of access and uh, easy sociability, uh, which is very important to business. You say that there's a sort of a working class golf course out there on Shelter Island. In, in my neighborhood in L.A., there are, there are several public courses. I near live near one called Rancho Park, where you can play 18 holes for $35.50 on weekdays, $21 if you're a senior. Doesn't that make golf a, a game for the little guy? Yeah, sure. There's no question about it that that the little guy can play golf, that these working class golfers are really buying into what Trump himself calls the aspirational aspect of golf. Yeah, there is a sense that golf steps you up in class. Mm -hmm. And, and, And Trump himself says that, you know, it shouldn't be too easy. (laughs) <laughs> to play golf, should have to work really hard and make a lot of money so you can really join a good club like one of mine, uh, so that golf really means something. I think that you know there are there are lots of you know I'm sure firemen and cops and uh, people who have stretches of free time who play golf. But again, I think that the pull of golf is really you know what you see on weekends on television in these great vast green Valhalla-looking clubs, and in the idea of the rich golfers and the the pro golfers who are, you know, a kind of emerging class of athlete in America, who, by the way, are, I think, just about, in, in, in in my history, just about the only athletes who are listed not by, you know, batting averages or how many rings uh, they've won or, you know, most valuable player awards by money earned. I think the money list is really the key to who are the top golfers. And I, I suspect that even though he, you know, hasn't won anything in ages, Tiger Woods is still at the top uh, as, as one of the world's leading clothing models. Well, let's get back to Donald Trump for a, a minute here. He's more than a golfer. Of course, he owns and operates uh, luxury golf courses and owns the clubs, and he employs lots of people at his uh, golf courses and golf clubs. Tell us about Trump as an owner and an employer of uh, golf courses and clubs. You know, any time that he plays golf or talks about golf, he is, in a sense, promoting his brand. I mean, I don't think that anybody, I can't think of any politician in history who has done as well as he has in promoting his private businesses, you know, while he's purportedly doing taxpayer work. Last question. You say to understand golf is to understand Trump. Please explain. Well, there are aspects of, there are aspects of golf that play really into Trump's character. One way to do better in golf is cutting corners. 
in this case, you know, if if you if you take a bad shot and want to take it over again, and they let you do it, your partners let you do it. It's it's called taking a mulligan. Actually, Clinton did it so often it became called taking a billigan. <laughs> but but I, I think that the idea of this lazy man sport. I mean, it is a lazy man sport. I mean, he he can't even walk around. He has to go in a cart. Yeah. I mean, it would be better uh, better exercise if he actually walked or even if he carried his clubs. But, you know, we can't really get into that because except for Chris Christie, I don't think that body shaming is allowed in America anymore. That's certainly not in the, certainly not among nation readers. Right. But in any case, so back back to golf. So it's it's a plutocratic sport. Played at its highest level, it's with extremely expensive equipment. Uh, it's in places that cost enormous amounts of money to join. I mean, his Mar-a-Lago club. When he became president, the uh, the membership uh, initiation fee jumped from a hundred grand to two hundred mm. grand. Again. The, the perk of a president's golf club. Look who you could schmooze with or said that you were schmoozing with. The, the joke always was that golfers and fishermen were the biggest liars in explaining how good they were. And the only difference was that fishermen had to show some evidence. <laughs> they had a fish. <laughs> golfers do not. Everybody, as they get older, become better golfers. Uh, at least in their stories. So you lie, you cheat, you socialize. It's a sport that's not really a sport. It's a sport that's traditionally been exclusionary, that's been racist, that's been sexist, and is befouling the environment with chemicals. So how much more do you want to you know, <laughs> uh, compare Trump and golf? Robert Lipsight, the legendary sports writer. Read him at thenation.com and Tom Dispatch. Bob, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That was fun. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.